You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanists Podcast. This is episode 161, and I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I keep wanting to say I'm at Crown, but actually at Crown College (laughs) is Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English there. Michael, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. I had just had the overwhelming urge to shout, what's up, party people? You know what? <laughs> that time of semester. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Uh, also online, you just heard from him. He's a professor of English at Central Christian College in Kansas. He is David Grubbs. David, how are you doing? Oh, pretty decent. Couldn't find my boots this morning, but then I did. There you go. Do you wear, like, cowboy boots, David? No, I wear work boots. Oh, Sorry. Oh. Well, anyway, I'm listeners, as you know, while they talk about boots, I'm going to go ahead and get the show introduced. Uh, <laughs> this is our flagship podcast, cast, as we call it, uh, but we do have other shows on the network. The interviews keep coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. We've had some very interesting ones going on here recently. Uh, also, Book of Nature has a new episode out on dystopian fiction. Uh, during which I think Todd Pedler said, boy, I wish the Christian humanists would make an episode on this. And then Dan Dawson said, uh, dude, he, they, they did. Although, uh, you know, like... we have so many now that I can barely remember some of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're talking about Todd Pedler, the guy who knows everything. The prince of the age. <laughs> and, who, and who dispatches me every time I, I'm foolhardy enough to start a chess game with him before I really get into the game. But uh, we also have the Christian Feminist Podcast, which will be having a new episode soon. And try out the Pietist Schoolman Podcast with Chris Gertz. He's doing a series of interviews with scholars from the Pietist tradition about what it means to be a Christian college, and specifically what that might mean for those traditions that come from the Pietist stream. Very good stuff. All five shows, of course, are free on iTunes. Tell your friends about them. It's good stuff, man. Today's subject matter, though, uh, is an essay that I read years ago uh, when I was an undergraduate. Uh, It had been behind a paywall on the Christianity Today site for a long time, and apparently still is, although I didn't realize it because I punched (laughs) up the title arbitrarily at home where I have never subscribed to Christianity Today before, and it came up without a hitch. So, uh, listeners, we are going to put the link up there. If you can't get to it, we do apologize. I guess what I can suggest is, you know, go to your local college library, see if they can get you a copy interlibrary loan. Uh, and again, I just apologize that we're doing an episode on a on an article that's behind a paywall. But this is a 1996 essay from Christianity Today by Rodney Clapp, uh, who 
was formerly a uh, grad student of Stan Hauerwas and so is one of the Hauerwasian Mafia, as Tony Jones identifies them. David, there's all kinds of angles of entry for this essay, so I'm just going to pick one arbitrarily and see where it goes. Talk a little bit about Rodney Clapp's account of Christian attitudes towards economics. I know very well he oversimplifies the picture, so certainly critique that. But also say a little bit about what Clapp highlights that evangelical culture would do well to remember. Sure. One of the the foundational um, ideas of this particular article is that um, the especially the, the Protestant evangelicalism of America, you know, as he wrote, did not just suddenly, you know, wake up in the middle of this, um, you know, culture of malls and pervasive, you know, uh, television ads and all the rest of it. You know, uh, there, there, there's not, not this kind of accidental moment when we realized, oh, wow, we're in this commercialized you know, culture. But in fact, that the roots of the the particular form that uh, oh, commercial capitalist consumerism, lots of c words we could toss in here. Mm-hmm. Um, that the particular form that it's taken in the United States in our age is is something that's directly connected to the roots of Protestantism in this in this country. Um, he, he sets it in particular, uh, he, he wants to say that there was a particular moment at which Christian thinking about these kinds of economic issues changed. And, uh, what he wants to point to is the Protestant Reformation, um, in which two things happened. One, a kind of sacralization of work, what's been called the Puritan work ethic, um, but also a kind of radical individuation of religious experience, which tended to focus on internal affect, um, that your, your experience of the faith had a lot to do with how you personally felt on the inside. Um, those two things work together in, in his argument, uh, in, in this basic way, if you have a society of people who are convinced that working their hardest to produce the most is the best, you're going to produce a culture with a surplus, and they got to do something with it. So they either consume it and become consumers, or more consumers than they were, or they sell it and they become wealthy. So that's kind of what happened. Um, the other idea of... Uh, sort of radically individual um, experiences of religious affection. Um, he said that as, a, as, our, as our culture secularized, uh, we kept that, that need to have um, these kinds of emotional fulfillment that come from identification and conversion experience. Mm-hmm. And that those were transferred into um, the kinds of choices and the kinds of claims made about products. He points in particular to um, uh, patent medicine advertisements from the 19th century that have this very kind of, you know, testimonies and a tent revival kind of feel to them. Once I was awful, but then I took this snake nectar, and Mm. now 
I can jump over tall things or whatever. Right. Well, real quick, Michael, uh, since we're kind of rolling into the next question already, <laughs> why, why don't you comment a little bit more on this since you prepped this one? Uh, oh, one of Clapp's central themes is that this sort of post-Puritan culture that David's narrating mm-hmm. is going to retain its appetite for that intense emotional experience. In other words, Jonathan Edwards doesn't go away. And consumerism steps in to fill that vacuum in ways that David has started to narrate. Go ahead and, I mean, critique the places where Clapp's account is partial, just like I asked David to do. But also <laughs> note the bits where... He reminds us helpfully about the nature of our own emotional experiences. Should I go ahead and start answering David's next question, too? <laughs> or... Why not? <laughs> Sorry, dude. They, 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 they were so closely connected in the essay that I, I wasn't even paying attention to where my question left off and his started. That's all right. We, we can talk about both of them here for a bit. Go ahead. Um, he, he seems to, to get this argument to build it off of a book by the British sociologist Colin Campbell. The book's called The Romantic Ethic and the Spirit of Modern Consumption. And, and one of his points is that that Protestant work ethic that uh, Max Weber talks about begins as an ethic of production rather than consumption. And he talks about how Puritans um, actually avoid uh, spontaneous pleasures. Uh, but because production without consumption is going to lead to a stockpile – uh, the the ethic of consumption is bound up in the ethic of production from the very beginning. And he points out that Wesley actually knew this and, and critiqued the Protestant work ethic for that uh, for that very potentiality. So what happens is as the as the modern world secularizes, as as Puritanism gives way to Romanticism, what you get is these negative emotions that Puritans put on themselves become ends in themselves so that the puritans use those negative emotions to uh to use a good augustinian concept order their loves mm-hmm. uh but, but uh in modern secularized society that you know you should you can put your loves in whatever order you'd want you want to and, and of course the the capitalist establishment has uh, good reasons for wanting your loves to be disordered and so those negative emotions become ends in themselves. And he says, that's why we like to go to horror movies. That's why we like to ride roller coasters. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he says, we pay money to savor the tears we weep on cushioned theater sh- seats at a Shakespearean tragedy. Um, and I'll just go ahead and nod to uh, Charles Hackney here. He actually cited a body of research that says that that doesn't actually do anything for your emotional health. Sorry, Which I Aristotle. didn't know. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, keep rolling, keep rolling. My bad. Yeah, so so these these feelings, these ostensibly negative feelings become ends in themselves and thus disconnected from higher moral principles, higher systems of virtue, however you want to think about it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure this is as modern a phenomenon as he's talking about, mm-hmm. um, if, if only because – Augustine complains about it in the Confessions. He 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 complains about going, about I was going to say going to see, but it's not going to see. About reading the uh, the Aeneid and weeping tears over the death of Dido when Dido is not real, and he should be weeping tears over his own spiritual condition. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not I'm not really sure that the phenomenon he's talking about is is solely a consumerist phenomenon. I think more likely con- consumerism feeds off a natural tendency we have to to mm-hmm. enjoy unpleasant emotions. 
Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and, I, and honestly, I think that's one of the shortcomings of this essay now that I'm revisiting it 20 years later is that it ignores the dialectic, right? Uh, you know, the Puritans don't invent the notion of intense emotional experience. You're right. They get it from, among other places, Augustine and Shakespeare and Tertullian and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. And then they, you know, they translate it into something that is for the sake of the soul but then it gets translated back out of that idiom back into some other ideology. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that that dialectic is something that stretches back much further than the Puritans. David, I, I, you were, you were uh, signaling your agreement. Is there anything else you would add to that? Well, I mean, what you, what you point out there is a tendency that he's got, I mean, through, through all of this kind of historical sketch, I mean, he talks about... Um, you know, Augustine calling business evil and, you know, he cites Jerome and the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas. And he's citing these various patristic witnesses saying, you know, don't be doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, but <laughs> uh, church authorities don't say don't be doing this stuff because nobody's doing this stuff. Right, right. I mean, right. the fact that you've got people... You know, the fact that you have voices saying um, that's not what we ought to be doing is an indication that there are people who are doing it within the community. Exactly. It's, it's analogous and, to the uh, Yahweh and Asherah cave painting, right? I mean, yes. cer certain enemies of, the, of biblical faiths were saying, aha, you see, in the 7th century B.C., they were worshiping Yahweh as a bull god and Asherah as his cow, and they were doing it with visual images, to which anyone who has actually read the Old Testament says, "Have you have you not looked at Ezekiel?" <laughs> yeah, that's the pro That's what the prophets are yelling at, guys. But the other thing is, you know, I mean, yeah, John Wesley points out if you work hard, you get more stuff. Oh no, well, I mean, I, I'm I'm sorry, but I I can't read the Book of Proverbs without it telling me that what I ought to be doing is working hard. And saving, and that wealth comes to those who work hard, and that's not a bad thing in the view of the work in the book, view of the book of Proverbs. Yeah, you know, but a lot of things it, aren't bad things in the book of Proverbs. That's a yeah. that's a hard book to build your theology on. I'm not I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not building my theology. I'm, I'm not saying I'm building my theology on it. What I'm saying it's also is not that that hard. I've seen people do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It's a, that is a book is, of shifting sand. <laughs> well. I don't think so because it's in the Word of God. But and my, my, my point being, it's the, the only canonical witness, the only canonical voice is not the voice that says, give away all that you have to the poor and come follow me. Mm -hmm. There is also a well-established canonical, vo canonical voice that says, get up early, do your job, devote yourself to the work, and then use your wealth wisely. I mean, that's another... That's another voice that's in the canon. And, you know, when he cites Wesley, it's as if Wesley is this prophetic voice who suddenly woke up and said, gosh, guys, this is a problem. But there's this whole thread running through, I would say, starting in the canon and throughout church history where they're balancing these canonical voices. The voice that says, do your work, work hard, you know, subdue the earth, cultivate it, tend the garden, enjoy its fruits. But... Not so much. Don't be building, you know, tearing down your old barns and filling them with new ones because you're going to die. 
Right. Or to stick in the Old Testament. I mean, you know, Isaiah says, you know, a curse on those who add field to field and, you know, deprive the widow of their property. Right, exactly. And and all the and, and the other prof you know, the other prophetic oracles that condemn conspicuous consumption of various kinds. Mm-hmm. The cows you know. of Bashan and Amos. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I mean love it's that passage. You know, it's it's not as if human beings throughout history and throughout the canon haven't figured out how to get rich and conspicuously consume at the expense of others. Right, right. And and again, I mean, this is one of the reasons I, I remain a Brugamaniac, because I think his biblical theology accounts for that plurality of voices that we're pointing to. Yeah. And, you know, I and honestly, by the time I got to the end of this, of rereading this essay, I was kind of glad it wasn't another 3,000 words long. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I really think that, you know, this this picture of history is partial, especially like you were saying, David, when he's talking about uh, patristic and medieval witnesses without mentioning that, you know, the reason we have a renaissance is because Catholic Italians started going into ba- banking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. that, that's kind of the picture. That's kind of part of the picture, you know? Well, um, and, and the reason why we had a Reformation is, well, among other things, there was a particular German guy who wasn't sure, uh, who, who didn't feel that what he'd been given to deal with his feelings of internal guilt um, was adequate. Right, right. So, I mean, I, I'm inclined to say that, I mean, Clapp's picture is a helpful corrective to a lot of the ideologies that were floating about in 1996, but mm-hmm. don't take it as the full picture. Yeah, but how could it be? It's an article in a magazine, but still. Yeah. But still, still. but still. <laughs> that, that, that's why we do podcasts on these things, yeah. to give a little bit more of the picture, right? Yeah. Can I point out one thing that I think is useful, though? Go. Um, it is useful that he he ties it back into the idea of manufacturing uh-huh. and industrial production. Because even if I don't think the human heart has necessarily changed, you know, it is still a pit of wickedness that is driven by greed and lust of all kind. Our God is still our, bed- our belly. Like, like most Eisley. <laughs> yes. Nonetheless, being able to mass manufacture things... Um, and, and, and a culture that's built around that kind of production, it does it does change the tenor of that old appetite that we already knew. Right, right. And, and it goes back to a similar phenomenon we talked about back in the uh, censorship episode a few episodes back. You know, certainly there are dirty poems before the 19th century, mm-hmm. but the ability to produce 10 million of them in three days, that's a new phenomenon. Right. <laughs> well, anyway, David... Clap, you know, presents an interesting take on advertising, namely that advertising is a kind of education for our fears and desires and needs. Mm. They make us more disposed towards certain ways of life than towards others. So, I mean, he even goes a step beyond what Michael just said about uh, desires being disordered and says that, in fact, they are not merely disordering them. They wouldn't be nearly as insidious that way, but they are giving them a new order, a different order. Um, since we're all three teachers here, what about Clapp's story about advertising here rings true? What might not be adequate to what you see, and what's most frightening about these implications? Ooh, um, probably the thing that, um, the, the, the thing that, that most, uh, stuck with me, so to speak, um, is the degree to which these 
late 19th and early 20th century um, industrialists, uh, advertising people, whatever, the, the degree to which they were just openly saying, we need to cultivate new habits in the population, we need to inculcate new desires, and we need to educate them into new needs. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, the, the degree to which it was overt was um, kind of surprising to me. I'd never read anything that presented those uh, those kinds of sources. That was that was really interesting, mm-hmm. and and I will confess there was a part of my brain that said, "Aha! I knew it." <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so in other words, I mean, and I forget which co- company it was, David. If you've got it in front of you, you can say. But mm-hmm. I mean, one of the toothpaste manufacturers gave us the idea that we need to brush our teeth every day. Yes. Now I'm yeah, still oh, yeah. going to do it because yeah. you know, <laughs> you know. Here's well, here's a better example that won't make your teeth fall out and give you bad breath. <laughs> um, shampoo companies figured out how to double their sales by instructing you to repeat, ladder, rinse, repeat. Oh, you use you use you twice as much you use twice as much shampoo as you actually need to. Well, and actually, you don't need to wash your hair every day until well, you start washing your of. hair every day, and then you have to. See, that's why I thought I was being clever as a kid when I realized that if I didn't repeat, the shampoo lasted longer. <laughs> you, you're, a, you're a very bright young man, David. <laughs> you, you young subversive, you. <laughs> I won't repeat. <laughs> Fight the power. Um. Plus, you know, Procter & Gamble, the, the president's a Satanist. Oh, goodness. I actually hadn't heard that in many years, Michael. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and it's not just that. It's uh, the 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 Quaker Oats guy um, basically saying we need to teach people to eat oatmeal at breakfast mm-hmm. because apparently most of them weren't, you know. And and yeah, I was I I didn't read the whole thing, but you know, a bunch of people, a bunch of my friends on Facebook were passing around, you know, links to this article about you know the rise of breakfast cereal as a, you know, as a food genre that was. You know, largely unanticipated. You know, human beings for centuries got along without weird cornflower balls and Technicolor. <laughs> you know, uh, but but you know now that's that's what kids eat while they watch. Well, they don't have Saturday morning cartoons anymore. While they watch one of their mini cable networks of twenty-four hour cartoons. Mm-hmm. Michael, what would you add? Just the, his, his describing that as a, uh, or maybe it was you describing it as a, a mode of education is truly frightening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean it's it's one of those things where you know, and again, I I don't know why I'm I'm footnoting our previous episode so much this morning, but I mean, when we talked about uh, Neil Postman's book, uh, amusing ourselves to death, I mean he had that notion too that, you know, television more generally, but especially advertising, is a mode of education. It teaches mm-hmm. us to desire certain things. And, and, of course, I mean, you know, 10 years after this book, you know, Jamie Smith's book, Desiring the Kingdom, takes this as its central programmatic research question, right? Can a Christian college attempt to subvert the desires of consumerism and militaristic nationalism and whatnot? Mm-hmm. I, I just, um, y- you think about the way it must change the way students think about your classes, about education, about all sorts of... I mean, he talks about students being referred to as consumers 
mm-hmm. instead of as students. I, I don't know if I've heard that, but I've definitely heard them called customers. Oh, you haven't? Oh, no, wow. No, I have. I have not. Not at, not at Crown anyway. But customers, you hear all the time, and it's just no. What I do is not customer service. It's it's something different than that. Mm-hmm. Right, not, right. Not not everything has to look like a business. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I mean, you know what? One of the awesome things about Emmanuel College is is the uh, the person who rails most loudly against that mentality is the chair of our business school. Oh, that's good to hear. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I, <laughs> uh, so you know, I, I don't think David Jordan listens to this, but David, you're my hero. <laughs> well, he probably says that because he knows the difference. Well, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I just, One thing. I, yeah, go ahead, David. Oh, no, you, you, you go ahead, then I'll go. I, I'm just very <laughs> interested in our, like, very knowing attitude toward advertising. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. all think we're above it, and yet we must not be, or else they wouldn't keep doing it. And mm-hmm. and I, I th- I've talked about this on some previous episode. I don't remember which one it was, because, like I said, I never remember an episode three weeks after we do it. Well, just footnoting the heck out of ourselves today, but go ahead. <laughs> to quote myself, um, <laughs> when you watch television, the ad is the only reason you're watching. Like, like you, you think of yourself as kind of suffering through the ad, but the, the television shows we enjoy exist uh, because advertisers pay money uh, for the, for the shows to be on the air to attract us to the television long enough to watch their ads, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and there, there's something really really disturbing about that to me. Right, and honestly, this is one of the reasons why I think that you know Netflix might be our new Medici, because you know I'm not saying that they're moral, just like I would never say that Lorenzo the Great was moral, <laughs> but mm-hmm. they are introducing a new economic model to the production of television programming. Yeah. Uh, well, they are and they aren't. They're 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 essentially piggybacking off of the uh, pay cable model, the the HBOs and the Showtimes. Oh, point taken. Point taken. But yeah. Here's the deal about Netflix. Netflix could but either. But it's not so blasted expensive. <laughs> well, it is if you want to see everything, because Netflix doesn't carry everything. There's also gotcha. Hulu and Amazon Prime and HBO Go and Showtime Go and Cinemax Go, and if you want to if you want to consume everything, which which if you if you are a person who considers him or herself like with the culture there's a lot of stuff you got to watch right yeah it's it's a golden age of television how dare you miss it i still haven't seen the fargo television show because it's not on netflix hulu or amazon prime i didn't know there was one Uh, it's supposed to be great but i haven't seen it so so the point is either you feel this like immense cultural inferiority or you pay even more than you would have to get all the cable channels and be advertised to uh, to, to watch it all. So I, I I think the Netflix model could either lead to us being satisfied not seeing everything, or more likely it's going to it's going to lead to us being even more consumerist just without getting ads every five minutes, except on Hulu where you pay and watch ads. So there's a racket. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's that is the Tom Sawyer of uh streaming services. Well we but we don't have cable anymore, so Hulu is our option for seeing new oh, shows. Oh well we don't either. We don't either. So yeah, I mean we just watch what Netflix and Amazon have and the rest of it I just kinda read about and well, say, well and, and that that's my point. It can go one of those two ways, right? The yeah. way you're talking about is a lessening of consumerism. But I think for most people what what happens when they cut their cable wire is actually increased consumerism. Right. And, and instead right. of serving instead of serving one master, you're serving forty. And it's Uh-oh. only gonna get worse. <laughs> well, well but 
Oh, go only, ahead, my, go ahead, David. It only feels like that though, because you've gotten used to the economic model of the big box, right? If, if we still lived in an era in which you got your meat at this store, and your, you know, your your dairy there, and your paper goods there, and so forth. Um, that wouldn't feel as weird to say that these people have these shows and these people have these other shows. It's just that we're in an era in which we're used to being able to go to one sp- one place that's got it all. Yeah, but I, but I, listen to David get historicist on us. But but <laughs> I, but, but I want to I want to go back to the idea that you're expected to get it all. Right. That that if 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 you don't if you don't watch all these shows, if you don't have an opinion about all these shows, there's something wrong with you. Right. Well, and not everyone's like me you. who's just inclined to tell people to kiss my dairy there. Well, yeah. I mean, not everybody is as <laughs> virtuous as Nathan Gilmore. We've all known that for a very long time. Or, or as much of a cheapskate listeners, let's be honest. <laughs> but when you're trying to resist consumerism, I think being a cheapskate might be a virtue. Mhm. Well, Michael, I'm going to use that as a segue. The home stretch of Collapse Essay is a virtue ethics program of resistance to consumerism. And like I said, it's something that other writers have picked up later if you want to go that direction. But before him, you know, I'm definitely seeing echoes here of Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue and Whose Justice, Which Rationality. What approaches does Collapse suggest to cultivate the modes of excellence that resist consumerism's educational program? And what do you think of his suggestions? I hope our listeners took a shot because Nathan Gilmore mentioned Alistair McIntyre. <laughs> Stanley Hauerwas at the beginning of the show. It's, it's pretty much inevitable this time of the semester. I, I go back to my uh, old standbys. He gives you three stories, uh, which is itself McIntyrean because McIntyre says the way to the way to develop virtue is to imagine yourself as part of a larger story. Yep. So he gives you three, um, one with a rich person, one with middle class people, and one with an intentional Christian community called the Bruderhof, mm-hmm. um, who put out Plow Quarterly, if anybody knows that magazine. Hmm. And and he, he talks about all three of these groups, and one of them is just one person, the, the rich guy is just one person, um, h- how they're able to resist consumerism in ways appropriate to their social class. So the the rich guy uh, builds low-income housing or builds housing for low-income people and presumably nicer housing than most low-income housing. Um, mm-hmm. He gives 30% of his time to serve on the board of Christian organizations. He, uh, he, he goes on mission trips and I'm sure funds mission trips for other people. So he tries to be generous with the money he's been given rather than just spending it on acquiring more. Uh, the middle class family lives simply, and they. Uh, the one I liked said, anytime she was inclined, the the wife, anytime she was inclined to want something new, she tried to be thankful for the things she had, and and magically she found her desire for new things to go away. The Bruderhof tell this story about how they used to have VCRs, and then they found out that children weren't singing anymore. The children weren't going outside and singing because they just wanted to sit in front of the television and watch whatever they had on their VCRs. So they uh, they locked the VCRs back up in the cabinets, and the, you know, again, magically, the children began to go outside and sing some more. And those are those are small things, right? The woman wanting a new dress and then not deciding she didn't want it because she was thankful for what she had. These these children singing instead of watching television. Those are small things, but that that is how you uh, apparently how you can resist consumerism through virtue is by 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 reordering yourself, by 
uh, telling yourself what's important and by focusing on that instead of on um, on the things that are frankly being thrown at you and the things you're told you need. Mm-hmm. David, what would you add? Well, one, one just to uh, the Breerhoff episode was real was really interesting to me for for a couple of reasons. One, um, I grew up without a TV in the house, and I think it did. I I don't I don't think I've I've yet realized the the degree to which that changed me, um, mm-hmm. because the I mean Michael's urge, the 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 urge that he describes of of needing to see everything so that you can talk about it, is. I I I've I've never felt like that. I've, I I I can't I can't understand feeling that pressure. And not and, only that, David, I don't even have anyone to talk to about uh, about it. So I, I don't know I don't know what that is. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Laurie Norris. Although I think spending time around the uh, UGA English department contributes to that. Because I mean, I remember in the office block. I mean, that was the talk was whatever hot. TV shows were coming around because I mean I mm-hmm. and all all three of us you know were grad students sort of in the heyday of you know the wire and the early days of you know what gets called the golden age or platinum age of TV so mm-hmm. I mean the other thing is 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 the ways that I think it's useful to direct this um, this virtue education or, or this virtue ethics program of resistance. Um, the the ways that it's it's useful to build that into the education of children, mm-hmm. um, for many of us of uh, us adults, um, it's gonna it's gonna look more like <laughs> rigorous penance and fasting, um, but for children, um, it 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 needn't necessarily necessarily look and feel quite that way because they haven't um, been ordered yet, right? We, we, well, they we have, have an, to they have an internal order. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we can, you know, they they come in with, you know, they come into the world with their God already being their belly, but we can teach, but we can say no often enough that they get used to the idea that no can sometimes be the answer. Well, they don't have thirty five years you know. of of habit saying yes. Yeah, exactly. You know. Hmm. Yeah. Um. One thing, though, that he brings up uh, as a, I, I guess this is part of the section that you're talking about, Nathan, mm-hmm. is is when he is when he starts talking about the ways that we use our wealth, and and wanting somehow people in individual churches to be letting other people look at their books to make sure they're using their money wisely. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, I wondered if either of you would comment on that. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's creepy. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a verse about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing in terms of charitable giving, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if my left hand isn't supposed to be knowing what my right hand is doing, I'm pretty sure neither of your hands should know what I'm doing. Well, then, then mm-hmm. you have the tendency, it, it would spoil even your giving, right? Because, because all of a sudden you would try to give more so that people would know you gave more. It, right, right. And and to put this in context, I mean, you know, the, there is a similarly similarly disturbing uh, thread in Stan Hauerwas's famous book, uh, Resident Aliens, mm-hmm. where you know he he suggests this sort of radical openness. Except in that book, it it has to do with your sex life rather than your money life. 
Mm. And, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where, and, and I'm going to situate it here, not for the sake of justifying it, because I do agree that it's a weird move and probably not good. <laughs> <laughs> but to explain where the impulse comes from, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. this is, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, when mainline uh, Protestantism, of which, you know, Hauerwas and Rodney Clapp are both part, really kind of starts going in this sort of civil libertarian direction where my life is none of your business. Mm-hmm. And they, and as far as I can tell, they are overshooting, I'll go ahead and say, in order to counter that momentum. Okay. Now, like I said, I still don't think it's good, <laughs> but I think yep. it's understandable. Well, it, it, it seemed to me to be of a, of a piece with some of the moves he made earlier where... I mean, I guess the way I said it before is that he seems to be shouting in unison with one particular kind of canonical or Christian historical voice mm-hmm. in order to offset a um, a real problem. But in his but in his shouting in that voice, he's also shouting down another voice that's also legitimately part of the mix. Yeah, yeah. And then again, that's part of, you know, sort of post-liberal theology in the late 80s, early 90s, is that mm-hmm. you don't try to give a comprehensive picture. You perform a rhetorical moment in which you counter destructive momentum. And again, it's it's not the way that I write either, usually, <laughs> although sometimes I slip into it. I'm not going to deny that. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is, you know, something about this, this, I don't even want to call it a genre of theology, but this... Uh, this movement within theological writing. Mm. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, <laughs> I want to I, I want to take a couple little sidetracks here. Mm. Um, David, all three of us have spent some time in the freshman composition classroom, and one of the staples of that class, at least in the textbooks I've previewed, and I've previewed a bunch. I don't know if you guys have that as part of your employment is looking at, you know, exam copies of composition textbooks. But I've looked at a lot of chapters on the analysis of advertising. Uh, What's interesting is, at least in my experience, a lot of those ad analysis units tend to assume that sort of 19th century paradigm that Michael was narrating earlier. David, we've touched on this already, but what shifts in advertising strategy have you seen that Clapp's article anticipates or fails to anticipate? Is there a particular section where he makes those kinds of programmatic prophecies about what advertising is going to do? Because no, I, I would... he doesn't, and that's the point. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I I tried to set this up surreptitiously so that you could uh, go into it without revealing, but <laughs> right. Well, he focuses. Um, I mean, we've already talked about it. He focuses on advertisement as um, advertisement as pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he focuses on advertisement as uh, a thing that is meant to inculcate or or foster um, appetite. Uh, he glances at the idea of advertising that seems to have nothing to do with overtly telling you that you should do this or want this. Mm-hmm. but rather uh, more tacitly associates it with things that you would want to be. Like he talks about cigarette commercials that just show you a picture of a cowboy doing cowboy things. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
I guess I've seen more. Um, uh, I've been noticing more uh, advertisements that go that go that route, where you know I'll be watching a commercial and I'm not even entirely sure what company is being advertised or what product is being advertised. Um, there was a, I think it was some auto manufacturer did a commercial about, and it was about farmers. And it was just a, a, a voiceover from Paul Harvey talking about farmers <laughs> along with yeah. photos of farmers. And I'm watching this whole thinking, the whole thing thinking, man, I feel like I'm, you know, looking at like a, you know, I, I feel like I'm watching our version of Piers Plowman right now <laughs> with the heroic farmer. Uh -huh. But the whole time I'm like, but this is a commercial. What are they advertising? What are the, <laughs> what are they trying to get at? And it ended up being some kind of pickup truck advertisement. Mm. It's called but they branding. never act, but they never overtly ever said the name of the product. The word was never spoken. It was just the logo at the end, and then the commercial was over. But hey, you're talking about it. Oh yeah, I'm I'm talking about it. <laughs> but but I mean the, the the subtlety of that because it felt so. It felt like a documentary. It felt like a, you know, it 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 felt like another kind of art than a mm. commercial. And then at the end, stick in that logo, and it's basically saying everything that you're feeling right now. Linked to this. You know, it, it it just seemed much, much more subtle. And I think that's because, well, because we're constantly being surrounded by it and bombarded by it, we don't we don't feel the overt anymore. We we they're they're, they're necessarily getting more and more subtle. Mm -hmm. You know, the viruses are having to mutate. <laughs> right, right. Michael, what would you add? I think about a show like Mad Men, which is about advertising. Mm -hmm. And so you watch it, and you see behind the scenes at an ad exec, uh, ad executive agency, and you feel smarter than advertisement. And then it cuts to commercial, and it's one of the actors from the show that taught you how to see through advertising, advertising <laughs> for a product that's on the show. Yeah, and 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 at that at that point, you realize it's turtles all the way down. Yeah, <laughs> there, there's there's just there's just no way to escape this. Now let me tell you something truly horrifying. I I did on hold marketing when I was in college. That was my job. So when, uh -huh. you, when you call somebody and get put on hold and you hear some pleasant voice talking about uh, the toilets they sell or whatever, uh, I wrote I wrote those. So I took this uh, correspondence course on on marketing, and uh, the guy said something that has stuck with me ever since. He said psychologically neurologically there's no difference between a memory you have and a memory you only think you have and then he he talked for i don't know 20 minutes or so about ways to subtly implant false memories in the people who are consuming your advertisements so that they'll want your product more speaking of horrifying yeah, i mean right there's something um really really transgressive about that and and that's what that's what that pickup truck ad is trying to do mm -hmm. uh, th those those ads that that deal with nostalgia are trying to plant false memories essentially in your mind so that you will so i guess again that so you'll you'll reorder your reorder your life in a way that is uh favorable to them if you you know if you if you associate chicken soup with your childhood 
then all of a sudden you're going to associate Campbell's with your childhood, and you're going to buy more more Campbell's soup instead of making your own or whatever. Which, mm-hmm. you know, make your own. Campbell's soup is terrible and full of salt, and chicken soup is the easiest thing in the world to make anyway. But I like the salt. The salt was what I wanted. The chicken in brine? Oh, my word. Uh, all, all, all right. <laughs> Sorry, well, and, and, and another phenomenon that, that was actually going on when Clapp published this, and I actually went back and looked, I mean, these, these commercials started in the first half of the 90s, uh, but were the Sprite soft drink ads featuring Grant Hill. Uh, they obey your thirst. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where, you know... Image the, is nothing. Thirst is yeah, everything. Yeah, the, the, the explicit appeal of the ad is... You of you are too smart to fall for this commercial stuff, so just drink this because it tastes good. And of course, you know, my first thought is, you know, Sprite tastes good. You got to be kidding me! But <laughs> you know, it, it it's one of those things where even as Clap is working on this essay about you know the culture of advertising, there is this new ironic advertising style uh, mm-hmm. that attempts not to present something to the viewer but to sit down next to the viewer and point alongside the viewer at the rubes in the next room who actually fall for advertising mm-hmm. it, it's the, it's the it's the salesman who kind of calls you aside and says look i'm not supposed to tell you this ah, exactly right. exactly <laughs> right let me pull aside the curtain uh-huh. we're gonna go in this back room and we're gonna we're going to do things differently. You're, I'm going to show you the works, right? Uh-huh. We're going to play this game from the inside. That's you're exactly like, right. That's exactly and, right. And you're even more sold. Right. And like I said, I mean, and you guys can tell me if you've seen books that do it better, but, I mean, the ad analysis units that I've seen in freshman comp books seem stuck in Rodney Clapland. You mean they don't they don't deal with uh meta ads. They don't ads. deal with irony, they don't deal with meta right. ads, they don't deal with branding, they don't deal with all of these things. Mm-hmm. Well, let listeners, if you know of a book that does this well, let me know because I'd love to have a look at it. By the way, but... if any advertisers would like to sponsor the Christian Humanist Podcast <laughs> <laughs> Please get in touch with us. Yes, because you will prove that you are indeed the Jedi Master of your art. <laughs> yes. This episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast brought to you by Chicken yeah, Fry. Get it in a can. You know, I, I, I listen to all these old Jack Benny shows, and so I keep hoping Lucky Strike will, will uh, <laughs> advertise with us. And I'll even sing the jingle, Lucky Strike. The jingle yeah, we'll from 1945. A, there you go. We'll send well, Michael, you a decoder I, ring and then give you, you know, coded messages that tell you to drink more Ovaltine. As, as time runs down, <laughs> I want to I want to come back to one of my little obsessions that our our listeners are no doubt familiar with. But Clap notes this in passing at the beginning of the essay that consumerism has become so pervasive that it, it has actually colonized our calendars. Now, you can call this providence or happenstance, call it what you will, but Christianity Today published this essay on October 7th, 1996, the very first day that Fox News broadcast on cable TV. <sighs> now, with that meeting of facts, I, 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 I can't take it as you know something I can just walk past. I just have to ask it, in what ways do our fights over the meaning of Christmas assume a prior surrender of our calendars? We talked about this in our very first Christmas episode, the Wars on Christmas. 
episode, which uh, our listeners may remember Nathan Gilmore. I, for some reason, I remember this from six years ago, but can't remember an episode we did a month and a half ago, but whatever. <laughs> Nathan announcing that we had better go ahead and do this because the episode won't make sense much longer. Since then, you have referenced the Fox News war on Christmas approximately 300,000 times. <laughs> Just, just my own estimate. I, I thought it would go away. I really did. Which is way more times than we actually have episodes. I, well, I have multiple, hundreds of times an episode. Sometimes he'll just jump up and yell, War on Christmas! And, and then, you know, Alistair McIntyre's essay on the War on Christmas. <laughs> Beowulf, Beowulf, Beowulf. Where they reference Dante. Uh, <laughs> I just say life is guilt. Anyway, um... We are a snake eating itself. Yes, we really are. This is meta-advertising. <laughs> Carry on. Our, well, you know, our listeners are too smart for just a regular podcast. <laughs> That's why they should smoke fine Lucky Strike tobacco. <laughs> Smoother and milder. What was I saying? Uh, <laughs> In that episode of our calendars, in, in that episode, I recommended uh, splitting Christmas into two holidays: Advent and uh, Christmas, the, the kind of cheerful, consumerist winter holiday. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Clap doesn't recommend two holidays, but in, in his discussion of that middle class couple who's resisting consumerism, he does talk about them keeping the Advent calendar and f fasting um, mm -hmm. throughout the month of December to make Christmas mean something. Um, I, I think all of us are kind of disgusted by holiday creep, uh, by which I mean uh, not that uh, not that sketchy-looking Santa Claus at Macy's, but the phenomenon where <laughs> where Christmas begins to be moved back toward Halloween, mm -hmm. and, and and that that's a consumerist creep. I mean, I don't think anybody needs to uh, I, I don't think anybody needs to be told that that they do that because they can sell more things that way. So right, right. resistance to that is resistance to consumerism. But maybe the thing to do is to not put up your Christmas tree until until December twenty fourth. You know, old old the in, in the old fashioned style, the twelve days mm -hmm. of Christmas. You put up your Christmas tree on Christmas Eve and keep it up till Three Kings Day. By the time Christmas actually comes around, I'm usually pretty sick of Christmas. Mm -hmm. uh, because it started the day after Thanksgiving, which is, you know, the well, best. Well, no, in 2014, they started their doorbuster sales, like, two days before Thanksgiving. I meant in the farmer household. We put up our decorations. Oh, okay, 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 okay. I, I thought you meant the retail stores. I'm like, it, it really is. I mean, <laughs> John Stewart made that joke about, you know, Halloween and they're coming for you next. It's really happening. <laughs> and, and you know what's funny is you never hear anybody say, I think this is a good thing. And yet it keeps moving back earlier and earlier because somebody's going to these doorbuster sales. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and the ones that are on Thanksgiving are especially troubling to me because it keeps the employees of that store from having Thanksgiving. Yeah. So, so well, what? So you can get 30% off of your whatever you're buying. I couldn't think of an appropriately chintzy uh, gift. Right. me Elmo was the best I could come up with. And that's, right. That dates so. me. So those of you on the internet, you know, who, you know, see it as your righteous mission in life to organize boycotts, uh, how about boycotting the retailers on Thanksgiving? But here's here's the reason I'm a hypocrite. We always go yeah. to a movie on Thanksgiving. And that that keeps some poor kid from being at home on Thanksgiving evening, although who wants to do that? <laughs> Yeah. But but yeah yeah the point the point is the Fox News Christmas is not is not the uh, 
the Christian Christmas. The Christian Christmas is a feast day after a fast. Uh, and and while I think a lot of us keep great fast, the 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 Great Lent, the 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 one before Easter, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know a whole lot of people who aren't Eastern Orthodox who keep the Advent uh, fast. Right, right. Well, and I mean, you know, the talk of war on Christmas, gen- generally speaking, ends on December twenty sixth. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, could we just kind of say that, you know. The, the the endless creep of the shopping season further and further and so forth. I mean, can we just kind of say, oh, that's the war? I'd like to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, and, 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 and ironically, the, the, the funny thing is, is that for many of us, the, this kind of go-to about the commercialization and the materialism of Christmas is, well, the Peanuts Christmas, which oh, is a yeah. Christmas special. Yeah. Yeah, which, which exists to sell advertising. <laughs> Coca-Cola <laughs> sponsored it. Well, and I mean, this is where the the curse of teaching college English at a liberal arts college actually might be one of those disciplines Rodney Clapp talks about that's imposed on us. So it's it can turn out to be a blessing, but usually for the first at least two weeks of December, I'm so buried in grading I can't think about Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it's. You, you know the line in, um, I think it's Joy to the World, where uh-huh. it talks about, I, I, can't remember the, I can't remember the whole verse, but the, 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 the repeated line in the verse, it talks about you know the, the Messiah coming and him fixing things far as the curse is found. Yeah. And I, I don't know, if you can go into your, Christian se- in your Christmas season and look around and say, okay, this is far as the curse has found. <laughs> there you go. I just think it'd be nice to get to Christmas Eve service and not be sick of the whole thing. Yeah, point taken. Well, guys, I, I am looking at the clock and I've run us too long today. So <laughs> let's do this last bit, sort of lightning round style. David, we'll start with mm-hmm. you. Um, there's plenty going on in this essay that no doubt I neglected. As quickly as possible, point our listeners to a part that they can look at when they do get this through uh, interlibrary loan since I bungled and gave us an article behind a paywall. <laughs> cool. Um, the section that talks about the uh, the connection between kind of uh, evangelistic tent revivals, patent medicine, and then from there to advertising, and the the notion of adopting products as your own personal Jesus. Um that that was really interesting to me because you know i've i've heard people talk about products in that kind of religious way and christians say that that's Apple, an appropriate Apple. thing to do oh, sorry i got a little cough there yeah <laughs> but bless you um but uh being able to say no actually there's 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 a there's a gen, there's genetics there there's a lineage there mm-hmm. um you know that's that's not accidental. It's not inadvertent. Um, that that I think is 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 helpful to be able to to point to this thing that you kind of know if subtly is wrong and say no 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 that's on purpose. 
All right. Thank you, David, for the Depeche Mode earworm. Michael, what do you have to offer? Uh, two two quick things. Um, number one, he talks about how consumerism is built on the deification of dissatisfaction, that it requires you to always want more, to always want, want a void filled, that the things you're buying can't possibly be filled or can't possibly fill. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Adam Smith says that, in fact, outright in the theory of moral sentiments, and, and he's almost gleeful about it. It's, it's Adam Smith at his most demonic. <laughs> um, the other thing is, he uh, Clapp hints at something that Terry Eagleton, of all people, picks up in his book After Theory. I mean, he doesn't pick it up from Clapp, but he talks about it, which is the, the postmodern idea of identity as a void uh, around which circle a series of masks. Um, mm-hmm. That is a consumerist idea. The the idea that you mm-hmm. can just create yourself is is something that has been given to us by the by the advertising age, uh, essentially. And uh, and you know while there are philosophical reasons to think that that is the case, I think its its close association with consumerism means that we might want to think about that before we before we wholeheartedly adopt it and and see if maybe one of these older pre-capitalist modes of identity formation make more sense although there i am encouraging you to be a consumer about consumerism versus non-consumerism there are good desires michael so there really are turtles all the way down (laughs) well i mean and and you know I'll, i'll just piggyback on michael's for my last word i mean you know that's why it helps to think of things with a historical consciousness and i think that's one of the things that claps essay helps us to do i mean don't think of yourself as a blank slate deciding who you are because that itself is a historically contingent idea uh instead become aware of your own situatedness in history and uh, take a stand on your own being. So there I just rolled Hegel, Heidegger, Rodney Clapp, and probably Alistair McIntyre, why not, into my final <laughs> word. So, guys, I want to thank you. I've had fun talking about this essay with you. Once again, we're revisiting someone I read 20 years ago, which I hope I don't do too much of this because listeners will probably get tired of it, but I had fun. Uh, David, what are we doing next week? Well, uh, we're going to, uh, in, well, in, engage in probably one of my, you know, sort of favorite side pastimes, which is looking at other people's bookshelves. Um, whenever I visit someone else's home, if they have a bookshelf, I sort of wander over to it and browse and figure out what kind of person am I visiting at the moment. Anyway, I, I thought it might be fun to do something of the sort uh, for our listeners and talk about are reading um, books we read now, books we read for different purposes, books we used to read and not so much anymore, things like that. Mm-hmm. And that'll be our last episode of the semester. Very yes. good. All right, listeners, thank you for downloading. Uh, I want to remind you, you can find us at christianhumanist.org on the net. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And of course, we always appreciate any ratings and reviews you can give us on itunes that is our main distributor of the podcasts plural uh so any help you can give us there gets more listeners which means more people to jump in the conversation with us uh so until next week when you get to look at our bookshelves this is nathan gilmore on behalf of david grubbs and michael farmer saying let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger